A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky Today we're going to see in just a few verses something that reminds us very specifically of God's faithfulness, um, especially in ties all the way back to Genesis. And as we're looking at today, <clears throat> I want to remind us before we dive in is that there's this misconception that seems to be growing within the church that the Christian can separate the Old Testament from the New Testament that the New Testament is sufficient in his own, and while it is the word that contains the new covenant of Christ within it, it is the fulfillment of everything that has happened and has been proclaimed in the Old Testament. And God has made that abundantly clear through his word, and I would caution you, if anybody ever gives you the encouragement that the Old Testament is unnecessary, to probably not pay much mind to the things that they have to say because the only reason we can understand what the New Testament contains at all is because of God's faithfulness that has existed since creation. And so with that, keep that in the back of your mind as we look at today's text. And if you are in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, would you say amen? It says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we're going to stop right there. This morning we did have a laugh. We have a nine o'clock prayer time with a lot of the men here in the church in my office. And last week I sent them out of the office and I said, hey, next week I think we're actually going to cover... I think Howard corrected me. I said 10. He goes, no, I think you said 15. 15 verses. And this morning I sat him down. I was like, so I lied. We're going to cover a whole whopping three verses today as we continue this mosey through the book of Matthew. But here, just within these first three verses, or within these three verses, contains one of God's most comforting characteristics that I don't want us to overlook. And as we dive in, just a reminder from last week. We covered verses 1 through 4 as we see Jesus call the 12 disciples and we see the term apostle used for the first time. For those of you who weren't here, a disciple is a learner, a pupil, one who follows their teacher and proclaims their word. Within Christianity, that means to be a follower of Christ. And then they use this term apostle, which is more specifically to go out with the message from whoever it is that's given you. So we see this transition from not just learners anymore, but this title apostle given as Jesus is now sending the 12 out to proclaim the good news to Israel. And so with that, we see a very particular and specific command for the disciples or apostles to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I know that may seem insignificant as you're reading through this, but it is a very important part of who God is. 
Last week I had you make a note of uh, a commentary by Spurgeon. It says the apostolic number fitly represents the 12 tribes of Israel. As we're looking at the book of Matthew, we have to remember something. Is Matthew was written specifically with the Jewish person in mind. The book of Matthew is catered to them so that they would know that Jesus is, in fact, their awaited Messiah. As we work through the book of Matthew, we see one fact after another that would point them to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior that they have been waiting for. And we see that this was really important because as we read through the book of Matthew, the religious leaders of the time were not willing to admit that reality. That there were those among them, especially those that they looked up to, who were trying to convince them otherwise that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, we see that some of the religious leaders would even say that Jesus was working on behalf of Satan himself. And so Matthew has a specific task of reminding the Jewish reader of who Jesus is and that God has not forgotten them even now. So Jesus puts together the 12 disciples, which would re- ought, should have reminded them of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you were unfamiliar of who those are, we have 12 tribes who had leaders go back into the Old Testament. And these tribes are the tribes of Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, Zebulun, Judah, and Benjamin. And so, while each disciple does not specifically represent a specific tribe, the number 12 would have been significant to the people of Israel. Again, remembering and keeping in mind who this particular gospel is written to, these little details are important. To the mind of the Jew, it would have provoked the reminder that God hasn't forgotten his people or his promises, and God hasn't changed the way that he does things. So here, don't go to the Samaritan towns, but go to the lost sheep of Israel first. Why Israel first? Now, I'm not going to go into this particular bit of theology or doctrine, but we should know that we here at Calvary Chapel do not teach replacement theology. We do not believe the church has replaced the people of Israel. The church has been grafted into the people of Israel. This is God's chosen people, and they still are. However, even in the New Testament, we see God prioritize His chosen people people. We're going to flip through a lot of scripture today, so have your Bibles in hand and ready to flip. But the first section we're going to look at is Romans 1, 16 through 17. And I'm going to read this aloud. You can save your bookmark there because we're going to come back to this. It says, Paul would write, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This word everyone is important. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for, it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The provision of salvation and leading is and always was for the Jew, God's chosen people, first. A key marker for the ministry of the Messiah is that his plans must be in accordance with the Father. Jesus is very well known for saying, 
I aim or I seek to do the will of the Father. Details that are important is if Jesus is truly here to do the will of the Father, then he must first reach out to those that the Father has chosen. As Jesus does not get to come onto the scene and choose his own ministry, but as he and the Father are one, they do everything in like with one another. The call to seek the lost sheep of Israel is a wonderful and sweet reminder of one of our God's most comforting characteristics, and we'll get to it in a moment, but it is in fact that God's word is true and never failing. Today's title as we look at this is Jesus Sends the Twelve, Part One, as we break this down over the next couple weeks, but another title would be, as we sang this morning, Waymaker and Promise keeper as we look at it specifically today. Now, remembering that the gospel is unchanging from Genesis to Revelation, how do we know that it is important that Jesus would send the 12 to the house of Israel first? Well, flip with me over to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't know where Genesis is, it is the first book of the Bible. If you have flipped to your cover, you have gone too far. If you're in Genesis 12, verse 1, would you say amen? It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right here in the beginning of the whole word, God sets Abraham, the beginning of the Israelites, apart. And he does it because he wants to bless them as he loves them, but he also does it as we look here in Genesis He does it so that all the families of the earth would be blessed as well. That's important to remember as we work through this. And then in Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Go ahead and flip over one book. We're getting our homework in today. Exodus chapter 19, Moses is conversing with God as they are now out of the captivity of the Egyptians. And so if you're in Matthew, or Exodus 19, verse 3, would you say amen? amen? It says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God has always wanted the world to know that the people of Israel are his and that he loves them. It says that they are his treasured people among all people. 
He has set them apart to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As we read through the beginnings of the Old Testament, we see that God has set them apart, again, not just for love, but for the benefit of the world, that they would see God's glory in them. The people of Israel were grafted and set apart so that the world would know who the one true God is. He set them apart and he's given them a way of life so that those who would be troubled and lost would be able to look to the people of Israel and ask, who is this God that they follow so that I could follow him as well? When you read through Exodus as God is interacting with Pharaoh through Moses, he has made it abundantly clear, you will know and the people of Egypt will know who I am. And he removes the people of Israel after all these plagues and he reminds them of the work that he did in Egypt and he reminds them of something even more important that they are his treasured possession. Flip over again to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, keeping bookmarks in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we're going to come back to these books again. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says... For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations." If you have a pen or a highlighter, highlight that, underline it. And as always, if you see the person next to you not doing it, do it for them. God's love is abundant and never failing. As God desires the people of Israel, it's only sensible that he would desire that they be reminded through the hands of his son that his promises and his love goes on to a thousand generations. The people of Israel, as they would have been familiar with the Old Testament, would have been looking for the Messiah, or they should have been looking for the Messiah. But a key factor would have been that the message come to the people of Israel first, as it always has happened that way. Something would have been off, absolutely, if Jesus would have gone to the Gentile communities first. This would have been an obvious reminder that this man must not be of God because that's not how God has done things ever. God's word is consistent. It is true. His love is for us. And as he, they're looking at the, as the people of Israel would see Jesus, a sweet reminder would come back that God still loves them. And considering all the hundreds of years that they have been waiting for the Messiah, the sweet reminder that would have come from this, that his love has continued to be true when he says, I will love you for a thousand generations. Paul speaks of the deepness and the breadth of God's love, that it is unreachable. That as you pursue further into it, you get 
more overwhelmed by it and you can't reach the ends of it. This speaks immensely to the truth that even after all this time, even after they have forgotten to look for the Messiah, even after the religious leaders have captured the eyes of their, the people they should have been shepherding, God still sends his son there first to remind them that he still loves them. We have to realize that while it was already difficult for some to see Jesus as Messiah, it would have been impossible if Jesus didn't do it this way. If Jesus had done it any other way, it would have conveyed that God's heart had changed towards the people of Israel. And the accusers would have been right that this Jesus wouldn't have been working on behalf of God. He would have been working on behalf of something else. But as Jesus is God and he knows better, he made sure that the people of Israel knew that they were still his. Psalm 119, 89-90 reads, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. So how does this apply to us today? The knowledge of God's word provides direction in a, in a world full of enticements and deceit. Brothers and sisters, I know that we talk about this often, but we, we see a really practical use of it here is that we are encouraged to know the word of God well so that when the false gospel comes and when the deceiver does come, and trust me, his word tells us that the deceiver is absolutely going to come. The world is going to try to steal our love, our vision, our heart. We would know what, it is, what is true and what isn't. Paul reminds Timothy and Paul reminds the church that these deceivers are actually going to come from within you in the church. That there's going to be false gospels that come out that would convey that God's love has changed. That it is not unending. That you must fix yourself before you come to salvation. But these things are not true. The people of Israel needed to know the word so that they could identify the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, you need to know the word so that you can identify and know the sweet and loving words of our Savior. I was dealing with a, a church situation not all that long ago. And there's contention in the home. And I don't know how many of you have ever gone through trials and tribulation, especially within the home accusations come about, accusations get thrown at you from friends and family and they can be piercing and they can seem to be undeniably true and overwhelming. But we're able to go back to Scripture and see that Jesus, God, is not a condemning God. While He speaks truth, He speaks truth in love. We're able to identify that the voice of the accuser is not the voice of God so that this person would be encouraged to press on. When we remember who God is and what his word says, we're able to parse out these things and be able to press on for another day. Because the world is full of things that would try to distract you from God's abundant grace and mercy. We must know his word. We must know his voice. 
We must know his character so that when the dark times come, like it says in James, we would see his light at all times. God desired the lost sheep of the house of Israel to come to know his voice again. The people were deceived and manipulated. They weren't looking for the Messiah anymore. We saw previously in Matthew that God's heart, Jesus' stomach would turn and his heart would ache for those that are lost. The religious leaders, those who should have been pointing them to the Messiah, were no longer pointing them to the faithfulness of their God. They were pointing them to the vapid value of men. Friends, I would say that if your church leadership is pointing you to the value of your leadership, they're pointing you to the wrong thing. Because I have leaders that I value and I esteem and I greatly look up to, but their faithfulness is still vapid in comparison to how faithful my God is. I have made the mistake as I've walked this journey with the Lord to put too much of my faith in men and the best of us fall. The best of us fail. But Jesus never does. And in moments when I was on my knees because my faith was broken, I realized my faith had been misplaced the entire time. And the Lord drew me close as he taught me to listen to his voice again and not just to that of my leadership. And I'm telling you that as your pastor. I will fail I will fall. I will make the wrong decision. I can and will be harsh sometimes. I will be overly gracious sometimes. I will be slow. But God can make up for my lack. And I would encourage you to keep your eyes and ears on the Lord instead of myself and the leaders that are here. Don't look to the fainting value of men. Keep your eyes on Christ. But this isn't the end of the news. Can't imagine there's very many of us here who are Jews. If there are, congratulations. That's really cool, but not all of us are. But God's faithfulness isn't just for the Jew. Remembering again Romans 16 through 17, it is for the Jew first, but also for who? For the Greek, you can use and replace that word with Gentile. It is for the world. Paul is communicating to the world that Jesus did, in fact, die for them as well. While it was communicated to a group first, it was not communicated to them and them alone. One of my favorite bits of Scripture that provides insight into this to show that God's word has never changed and never failed because God has desired the hearts of all of his creation for all time. Exodus 12, hopefully you kept your bookmark in Exodus. Flip over to Exodus 12, 48 through 51. It's a really quick verse, but it's really important. God has just pummeled Egypt with the plagues. And the people of Israel are either in the middle of departing or they're about to depart. And God gives them a word. If you're in 1248, would you say amen? amen. It says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you, 
and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All of the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and on that very day the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. What's happening here? God lived up to his word. Egypt gets destroyed by these plagues. They get to see absolutely who the one true God is. We get some inclination throughout the plagues that some are already starting to submit and know who the one true God is. But here, we have the very clear understanding that the Egyptians were converting to Jude, or we'll say Judaism for now, but were converting to be Jews because they realized that their gods were faulty, lackluster, and unsaving. And even here in this moment, as God is pulling the Jews out of this mode of slavery, those who would turn from the land of Egypt to the land of milk and honey, he grafts them in and makes a way for the Gentile, us today. God hasn't overlooked anybody at any time. He has always made a way for those who would put their faith and trust in him, and he would deliver them as well as the people of Israel. These Egyptians would have stood in the midst of a destroyed city, a people who were weeping and gnashing their teeth, a people who were broken. Some of them may have been broken as well, but they chose to follow the Lord, and he doesn't just figuratively graft them in. You will treat them like they are one of your own because I see them as they are one of my own. God has always made a way. Here in this text, we see that he applies that they must be circumcised. Every man in the room quivers whenever we hear that word, especially when it's applied to adult men. But in the Old Testament, we see that God uses things to be the physical or tangible representation of who the people are. However, that was not what God truly desired of them. Again, that's just a representation of what God is truly doing in the people of Israel and to those who would be grafted in. What God desires is the heart of every man and woman. As you flip back to Deuteronomy, again, hopefully you had your bookmark there. Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the very end, we'll look at verse 5 and 6. Some of you who are new here are like, man, do you guys always flip this much? We do not always flip this much, but this is really important for us to understand. If you're in Deuteronomy 30, verse 5, would you say amen? And the Lord God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. This has been God's true desire since the beginning, and his mind hasn't changed. Romans 2, 25. I'm just going to read it. You guys may flip there if you like. It says, For circumcision 
indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What does that mean? It means you can portray righteousness all day, but the second you sin, you are just like any other sinner at any other time. You are still broken. You are in need of a Savior. And so he goes on to say, so if a man is uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If a man loves the Lord and serves the Lord above all things, will not his faithfulness to the Lord be counted as though he was? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one is a Jew who is, who, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Brothers and sisters, this couple verses here in Matthew that God would have these 12 disciples go to the land of Israel first is a beautiful reminder that God's word never changes. And for those of you here who are not Jews, you read this and you're like, how in the world is this beneficial for me? Well, it's beneficial for you because if God's word changes, you are in trouble as well. If God has changed what he loves, if God has changed what he desires, then none of his word is true and we can't put our faith in it at all. You, the Gentile, me, the Gentile, we see God's faithfulness displayed here and we can find comfort in his word knowing that it only, it continues on for generation after generation. It never fails. It's never true. And then when it comes to the promises for the Gentile, because they are true for the Jew, they must then be true for us. So verse 7 in Matthew chapter 10, And you proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As they went out into the land of Israel, they would proclaim, You've been waiting all these hundreds of years, but the time has come. The Savior, the Messiah, is here. Again, it reveals the consistent heart of mercy of our God as well as his unfailing word. He keeps his word. This is one of his most comforting characteristics and why do I say that? Psalm 145, 13 reads, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. God's promises are true and never failing. Brothers and sisters, this next bit of application, why we needed to hammer this home today. Because we live in a word in a world where faith seems less important. It doesn't mean that that's true. We just live in a world that doesn't value it. Even within the church, we want tangible answers. We want things to be shored up in front of us right here and now. 
as psychology and science continues to mount within society, faith seems diminished within it at the same time. We turn on the news, we go through social media, we see anxiety on the rise, we see depression on the rise, we see people running away from the church in droves because the Lord seems to not be present. But if God has always been faithful, he will continue to be faithful today. And you need to know that because there are times, and some of you here this morning might be in one of those times when you can't figure which way is up. But the Lord promises to direct the paths of the faithful. The Lord promises peace that goes beyond all understanding. The Word tells us that we can be like a tree planted by water. The word tells us that we can trust our God. This is important because it brings comfort to the mind of the hurting, the anxiety-ridden, the suffering, the fearful, the oppressed, to know, to know, not think. Brothers and sisters, we can absolutely know that our God is good. We can know that he is our way maker, We can know that he is our promise keeper. We sing these songs, but do we really believe these things that we say? God promises wellness and peace, but not the kind we often equate it to. And let me say this, because I I listened to a podcast that just about made my head explode yesterday. But it is true. When we go to church and we talk about God's promises, oftentimes we apply God's wellness and his healing the way that we want to understand them. We apply his provision the way that we want him to provide. We filter all of God's promises through this weird Western lens that is basically wholly inaccurate. I'll say it is wholly inaccurate. When God makes a promise to the believer, when he says you will have peace that goes beyond understanding, it doesn't mean that you will have peace that goes beyond understanding because he has removed your suffering. So you will have peace that goes beyond all understanding within your suffering. When God says that he is sufficient and he is our everything, that means even in the darkest place, we can find comfort in his presence. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it means you're going to walk through it. You have not been removed from it, but you have an abiding father now in it with you. We have to remember this because people are fleeing the church because they have this wrong understanding that God's provision is physical wealth. God's provision is an anxiety-free life. I would love to see a conversation between the pastor who promises an anxiety-free life and the Apostle Paul. 
the man who's been shipwrecked over and over again. He's been bitten by snakes. His church hates him. All these things is like, well, you must lack faith. Bro, you better back up because you're going to die. God's going to call fire down from heaven on you. The men who wrote this book were going through, the, the men that God used to write this book, let me rephrase that, would go through immense suffering, but would understand God's sufficient grace and mercy through it. They didn't take lightly the call to bear their cross and follow after Christ. The church is full of people who love Jesus but despise the cross. Brothers and sisters, we are called to bear it along with our Savior and to find joy everlasting within it. It doesn't mean I cherish the cross, but I do cherish the man who conquered sin and death on it, who is no longer dead today, but is in fact alive today. Amen? These are things we must know are true, and the reason we can know they're true is in little verses like this, when God displays that his heart and his word hasn't ever changed. Brothers and sisters, find comfort in the fact that the, the disciples were sent by Jesus to Israel first because his faithfulness endures forever. And because it had the opportunity to go there first and as God is faithful, it had the opportunity to come to you as well. Because at the end of Matthew, what does Jesus tell the disciples to do? To spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth is present here this morning. We sit here worshiping full of gladness because the disciples fulfilled that task. I don't know if you've considered that. The only reason you hold the word in your hands today is because of the work that they did. You wouldn't have it if Paul did not get to the places Paul got to. You wouldn't have it if they weren't faithful. And we can go through history and get how to, this has affected one, one other historical figure after another. They got to the ends of the earth. They penned the word of God. They continued to pass the letters out. Martin Luther was able to combat the Catholic church and write it in a language we could understand so we could hear God's still small voice instead of the oppressive church leadership. Brothers and sisters, we sit here today because God is the most faithful. And so again, I'm sure we looked at those three verses and some of you were like, "How? what in the world are we going to talk about for 45 minutes in those three? God is faithful. And so that's our last question. God's promises are true. Do we believe it? Can I say that's an ageless question? This isn't one where I can look at the younger people and say, do you believe it? I could look at every man and woman here and myself in the mirror. Do we believe that God's promises are true? Because if we do, brothers and sisters, you should be charged when you walk out of these doors and full of faith to proclaim the gospel and know that Jesus is in fact coming back soon. Amen? It's one we doubt often, but if every other bit of God's word is true, then Jesus is coming back soon. And that means that there are those who need to hear it outside of this place. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we come before you this morning. 
Lord, not with many verses, but encouraged as though we had consumed the whole word today. Lord, I'm thankful this morning for the continuity found from Genesis to Revelation. That, Lord, as you encourage us to be people of faith, we can move forward full of faith because we know that you deliver on your promises. That, Father, you go where we go for those of us who walk according to your word. That we, when we can't find comfort in this world, Father, you are our sufficient comfort and we need nothing else. That, Lord, as we move out in ministry, we move forward in ministry knowing full well that in our flesh we are ill-equipped, lacking answers, lacking direction. But, Lord, we are fully prepared in your spirit. And so, God, this morning we ask that as we close out in this last song of worship, that, Lord, our worship would be pleasing to you. That if there's any of us here who need prayer, either for an ailment, a heartache in life, or, Lord, even to bring ourselves to you, Lord, asking for forgiveness and salvation for the first time, we ask that you would fill us full of faith to come forward for prayer. 